You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Susan Orlean. Let me speak with Susan Orlean. This is she. How magnificent. I am so happy to speak to you. Finally. Finally, really. I know, it's very funny. But it makes it all that much more exciting. Well, you know, it it makes me think of um, the afterword you wrote to one of my favorite books of yours on Saturday the whole notion of what it means to anticipate. Ah, well, that is, and actually, I I am a great believer that anticipation is almost always better than the outcome. Uh, not that I'm not convinced that our call will not only meet but exceed my anticipation, but mm-hmm. it is certainly part of the pleasure of life. Yes, and you know what 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 struck me in in that afterwards uh, to to Saturday is perhaps on on the one hand the connection there may be between that afterward and your new book, the library book, because in a sense you um, perhaps it's an elegy in some way to a a moment where there was. A, a place for conviviality, um, and it's changed now. It's changed because we no longer, for instance, or very rarely do we use the phone. The phone has become something rather exotic. Isn't that strange? I, I've actually been tracking this over the years because I've sort of I've sorted out friends according to what means I communicate with them. It used to be that I talked on the phone with all my friends, um, and I would occasionally write letters. This shows you how amazingly old I am. I would occasionally write letters to my out-of-town friends. And then it advanced to emailing, and there were certain people who you mostly emailed, but you still mostly phone called. Then people started texting, and there were friends you texted, there were friends you emailed, and then there were fewer and fewer friends who you phoned. And now I barely talk to anybody on the phone, ever. I feel like it's, it's this strange event. When my phone rings, I'm always a little startled and think, well, there must be something wrong. Uh, bad so bad news. The reaction is something is wrong. So ba- bad news in some way. Yeah, and, and which is really funny. Um, I used to be very frustrated about why I couldn't get more work done. And I would just puzzle over where my day went. I just couldn't understand it. So I would occasionally try to track my time to get a sense of what I was doing that was eating up my work time. And the bulk of it was being on the phone. Now I'm on the phone almost never, except for business purposes. 
And I've also now learned that young people never look at their emails. So that's even become... Obsolete. It, yeah, and that they only respond... They never answer their phone, too, ever. So if you don't text or Snapchat or Messenger on Facebook, you're probably not going to be able to get in touch with anyone who's under 30. Susan, what... What um, I, I don't want to begin necessarily with a lamentation, but I can't avoid it in a sense. What what is lost in the process? There is it's it's a matter of um, distance, and there is something much more intimate about talking on the phone, including being able to literally just hear what the person's voice sounds like. The, the grain of the In, voice. Yeah, the inflections of what they're saying. The, the and, and also the sense that somebody is taking the time to interact simultaneously with you. And I'm not, I'm not a sentimentalist. I text everybody I know now, and I'm actually... I feel liberated by not being on the phone so much, um, but it is qualitatively different. There's no question. I guess in a way, you know, if you want to look at it without any um, sentimentality, you could also say that decades and centuries ago when people only traded stories orally, and then they started writing them down, there was probably something a little bit lost. You could you could also argue that maybe there was um, something gained, which was people crafted what they were saying a little more carefully, a little more deliberately. It's interesting. Uh, but, yeah. you know, if I could have had William Faulkner tell me the stories of Yakna Patapa County, I would have loved that would have been very interesting and instead i get it in the written word so i'm um, it's not all bad but in the process of developing friendships that i think it's been shown that you have to spend a certain amount of time with someone to begin feeling that you're friends and have a bond and i'm not sure texting quite counts as time spent together because it's not together so many things strike me in, in what you're saying i i feel as though your your forthcoming book the library book is not only um a celebration an elegy um a a uh, homage to to the your love of libraries and to one library in particular, and we'll get to that. But it's also, in in a sense, a book. I I feel perhaps I'm 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 wrong. That is written for your mother. Absolutely, very much so. And and I didn't expect that, and I didn't. I didn't set out with that in mind at all. And it, so it, it came as a surprise to me that the more I wrote the book, the more 
she emerged and I began, because I associated those trips to the library so strongly with her and, and just coincidentally, the fact that she used to talk about how much she would have loved being a librarian. So it, it just was the fascination with how attached she was to libraries. But there was also this other strange um, and kind of painful, um, well, yeah, it was very painful um, process that was unfolding as I was working on the book, which, you know, if libraries to me are about permanence and memory and preserving forever the stories that make up a culture, it was during this time when my mom began slipping into dementia and eventually by the time I was approaching the end of the book, she certainly didn't outwardly recognize me. And people are such um, faulty vessels of memory and stories and books are so reliable and sturdy and libraries preserve books and hold them forever and it, it really was a, the trope of watching my mom lose her memories when I was writing about preserving memories was something I had never expected and my mom actually passed away before I finished the book which was um made my recollection of our memories together going to the library that much more poignant for me and also felt really urgent that I just really wanted to remember that time because it was one of the sweetest memories that I had when I of being young and taking this trip to the library and being there and it just felt like everything was perfect. One of the reasons that I realize now that I have a kid is that uh, unlike taking my son to a store where he'd begin, he wanted this and he wanted that, and I'd say, no, you can only pick one, and that's one's too expensive, and, you know, it's a bit fraught. Going to the library is is just like falling into a gigantic treasure box, and you can have anything and everything, and... For a kid, it's just unimaginable to feel like, yes, you can have anything. Take whatever you want. We can have it. You can have it. I and, loved it. You, you can have it, and in a way, it doesn't have the drudgery of possession. Yeah, and this is uh, this is one of the reasons I feel incredibly optimistic about libraries. I think that we went through a period as a culture of being madly acquisitive. And I think we are leaving that period. And I definitely see in, especially in younger people, this real um, reconsideration of why you have to own everything. Uh, they're, they're big sharers, which is really what the library is all about. And after I moved 20 times with my huge number of books that 
I would box up and haul off to my next apartment. And, well, I think about how I felt when I stopped buying record albums. And it, it probably cut the the drudgery, as you say, of moving by 50% because that was probably the bulk of my um, possessions were record albums and books. And, I mean, I love owning books, but I have started taking books out of the library again because I re remembered very, very freshly how my parents felt like, Sure, if there's a book that's really important for you to own, you should own it. But if you just want to read it, well, that's what the library's for. And you go and borrow it and you read it, and um, that's that's great. Then you have the purpose of the book's existence, which is for you to read it. You so they were the original millennials, I guess, my parents, and being very into sharing and not feeling that they needed to own books. They didn't own lots of books, but they liked reading lots of books. You know, the the last conversation, just about the last conversation I had on, on a phone call from Paul was with Alberto Manguel, um, who, I don't know if you know his work, he wrote, no. uh, he wrote a beautiful book which you must read and you mustn't necessarily own it called The Library at Night. And now he... Oh, I've heard of it. Yes. I've heard of it. And now he's written a book which just came out called Packing My Library. And it's a take in a way on the fabulous essay by Walter Benjamin called Unpacking My Library, which is, of course, a gesture we all know, but that, that the, the books, when packed up and when unpacked, also become, you know, there's a Latin word for possession, which is impedimenta. They become... Oh my God. I know, isn't that good? That's what, amazing. Now, what what does that inspire, well, Susan? Well, the idea that they are um, obstacles, which is interesting because I'm sure the word object and obstacle have some root in common. And if it doesn't, um, it should. It, it, and at the same time, I keep I hear the word the PED and assume for some reason that it's about. Um, pedestal, something um, permanent. I'm flailing, but my I'm I'm a great lover of word roots and thinking about what inspired them to create a word impedimenta. That's amazing, isn't it? And 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 yes. we and we become possessed by our possessions, of course. And uh, you know what what struck me in in your very moving moment we had when you were speaking about about your mother is that in fact um as she as she was less and less present writing this book it seems from what you have written provided you with a certain form of sustenance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's in in terms of Writing the book? Just being able to continue. Just being able to continue to write it and to finish it, even though your mother was was less and less present. Yes, and it was... Um, it, it was a... 
I'm sure that it influenced my wish to keep reviewing those memories of her in the library and and at the same time seeing her memory sliding and, and feeling a bit of urgency on my part to persist and to capture my my feelings about the library and to finish the book and to see it through. Um, I mean, they, they ended up being so intertwined and in, in a deeply moving way for me, but also um, in a, as you say, a sustaining way, a feeling that I was doing something that was a memorial. And truly deeply meaningful you know there's a a line um by by a malian writer um and ethnologist um amado ba um you you may know it he says that when when an old man and i'm sure we could also say an old woman when an old man dies a library disappears with him you know, I didn't realize, but that same expression is also um, in uh, a Native American language, and now I'm forgetting which um, which particular tribe. But I think it's so interesting that we equate ourselves with live. I mean, to me, it's actually very natural that a person contains volumes of stories. Right, that's beautiful. The library yeah. does, and knowledge and experience and that and and at the same time in the inverse is that books to me seem animated in a way that most inanimate objects are not. And I think that's why it's nearly impossible to throw out a book, no matter how little you're interested in it. You you talk about anybody who could throw a book out. You you talk about you talk about that. You write about that in the library book. How books um, you 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 find it impossible uh, to to throw away a book, and you find it impossible to do. Uh, the, the, the horror of, of burning a book. Um, what also struck me, uh, very strongly was, um, your encounter with someone who worked at, uh, the library in Los Angeles, who made you feel that, um, there was a particular smell to books, which actually has a name, uh, Bibliosmia. Which literally, which literally, literally means the effect that books have on you in terms of smell, how they open your nostrils. And when, when Ken Brecker made you smell the book, you, you were taken by this notion that yes, books do have a particular smell and yes, books are, uh, sort of inspire you, uh, to, 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 to follow their scent. And you know, uh, Susan, there's a whole book in case you ever are interested in pursuing that t- 
topic by, a, of course, a German uh, scholar named Hans Rindesbacher. I love saying his name. It's nearly, ne- nearly as good as mine, which is called The Smell of Books, A Cultural Historical Study of Olfactory Perception in Literature. Oh, yeah. Tr- truly interesting, <laughs> but 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 when Ken Brecker made you smell the book, it was for another reason. Yeah, and it was uh, an astonishing reason. He took a deep smell, uh, uh, just a big whiff of the book, and you know I'm used to smelling a new book. I think uh, it's like getting a new car. It has that great, slightly chemically fresh smell that I think we all love, but a library book, I was baffled, and he said, well, you can smell the smoke in some of them, and I know I probably sounded ridiculously naive, but I thought, I don't know, do they let people smoke in the library here? I I was... (laughs) of shocked, <laughs> and I asked him, and he said, no, 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 from the fire, and I said, from what fire, and he said, the big fire, and he he was not dismissing me, but I think he just assumed that, of course, I knew this, and I said, "I tell me what, and he said, well, the arson in 1986, you know, the library was closed for seven years, and I stood there with my jaw on the floor and, you know, kind of grabbed him and said, tell me more. And in the meantime, our tour was more or less over. So I raced home and began reading about it. And I, I knew instantly that I wanted to write about it because it wasn't just any fire. It was the largest, most destructive library fire in the history of the United States. And even more amazing excuse me, to me, was that I had never heard about it. But how did it go unreported? I mean, because in a way, uh, the library book is everything we've already said, but it is also uh, an investigation on how this story was not investigated enough and remained in some way not known enough so that you would not know about it. You looked at newspaper, you looked at the front page of newspapers where nearly to the day, 32 years after that fire, which happened on the 29th of April, 1986. So and how come? How come? I, I, I was really puzzled. I was living in New York at the time, so I wasn't living in Los Angeles, but I still thought, well, this was a big event. And I know newspapers well enough to know that it certainly would have been covered in New York, especially because New York is the center of the publishing industry. Plus, it was just, it was a a big, significant event. I went back and looked through newspapers trying to understand what was in the paper that somehow dominated the news and caused the story of the fire to be basically tucked way back in the paper, barely noticed. And there was a very specific reason. It was the same day as the Chernobyl meltdown in the then Soviet Union. And the terror 
essentially worldwide terror that we were going to experience a significant nuclear accident was pervasive. The New York Times basically devoted the entire front section of the paper to the Chernobyl meltdown and the concerns. I had forgotten that for several days the Soviet Union was denying that it had happened, but they were finding radiation in the atmosphere above Scandinavia, and it was, you know, moving toward the rest of Europe and toward the United States, and it was terrifying. So the this fire, which was dramatic and significant, occurred at the same time as something that people truly believed could destroy significant parts of the known world and the the fear and distraction of that event was so significant by the time there was a little bit of a not a not a break in, in the concern but just <clears throat> a few days had gone by slowly the newspapers around the country began noting this fire and and the enormous damage. I will say one interesting thing. Within the middle of all of this, which paper would you imagine found space to cover in great length the tragedy of the Los Angeles Library fire? Tell me. Pravda, of course, because they were they had plenty of space in Pravda since they were denying that there was any kind of accident in Chernobyl, so they had to fill the paper with other stories and, of course, enjoyed pointing out that this was neglectful and disastrous and the library was in terrible shape and that was part of why it had burned, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a great irony in that. And, of course, when they had what is actually the single largest library fire in the world, which was in St. Petersburg, um, it was barely covered in the Russian press. So it's it's a, it's a really interesting flip-flop. But that that's why it didn't initially get coverage. Certainly in Los Angeles it did. And it got a lot of coverage. But it was a really frightening time I think probably until 9-11, there, there hadn't been a world event that so um, galvanized people with fear because this was the first major nuclear accident and no one had any idea of what was going to happen. The, the two things are not um, – have they, they actually have their strange, eerie – parallels because fire and nuclear power and their the fact that these are things that we can't really control as well as we think we'd like to control them. Um, to me, they seemed to have a, a kind of eerie symmetry. You know, of course, in 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 your in your book, you you bring out um, and you tell the story of how Ray Bradbury wrote his great book. 
and yes. and I'd I'd love I'd love you to to retell it. It's a story I know well, but I love the way you tell it, and it is. It's an extraordinary uh, story in so many ways, partly because the library, I think, offered such solace and such a space for uh, being alone in the company of others mm-hmm. um, that um, I, I think it, 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 it bears witness to, I think, what what you have found so often in that space as well. And then, of course, there is... Uh, the, the Truffaut movie, um, which I once had occasion to talk to Jonathan Demi about, which was very, very moving. Oh, really? Yeah, very, very moving. Tr- truly very deeply moving because they knew each other quite well. And I think, I think it's a, a, a really amazing story to tell the story of Fahrenheit 451. Mm, well, it really, um, it, it was a, a book that wove its way into the story in ways that I certainly never imagined. Um, Ray Bradbury had begun this story uh, about a society in which books are banned and a young fireman whose normal daily task is to find and burn books makes the fatal decision to take a look at these things that he's been instructed to burn and and becomes entranced by them. He then put this, Bradbury put the story aside, and Bradbury, just to back up a little bit, you know, because this is part of what is so truly awesome about Ray Bradbury. He spent most of his uh, childhood in Los Angeles. His family was not particularly prosperous, and when it came to college, they couldn't afford to send him. And he simply chose to educate himself by going to the library every day. And in his telling, he went every day to the Los Angeles Central Library for 14 years, uh, read his way through each of the departments, and educated himself. And he became a passionate lover of libraries, one of the great advocates for them, and his own education he owed entirely to that library, and certainly worked well for him, (laughs) to say the least. He had kind of run out of steam with the story, put it aside, worked on lots of other books and stories. When Senator Joseph McCarthy rose to prominence and witch-hunted communists and encouraged censorship and the suppression of free speech, Bradbury was really outraged and decided he'd go back to this book that had no... The only title, the working title was The Fireman. Um, at the time he had young kids and he loved his kids and he loved playing with them. And as any writer knows, there's nothing as much fun as procrastinating. And he simply couldn't get the work done. He couldn't afford an office. Then he discovered that another library in town, the UCLA library, had a room in the basement, a typewriter room where for 
25 cents an hour, you could rent a typewriter. He went to that library room and took the story, the fireman, and completed it, um, including the third act in which the fireman escapes and comes upon a community of outcasts who live on, in the woods and who have made the attempt to preserve literature by memorizing books. Since books are disappearing quickly, they become living books. One man might be Richard III. One person might be, uh, you know, the uh, George Orwell Animal Farm. They each choose a book and memorize it and so that they can contain the book, which I find very moving. Yes. When Bradbury finished the book, he couldn't think of a title. And he ended up calling the fire department here in L.A. and just asking, I guess he was fishing around for an idea for the title, and he said, "What? what's the temperature at which paper burns? Because the books would be burning <clears throat> at that temperature. And the chief of the fire department said, oh, at 451 degrees Fahrenheit. So he took that piece of information and tweaked it a bit and came up with the title Fahrenheit 451. Um, and the book has lasted as a classic for all of these years. And I reread it in the course of working on my book and was struck by how brilliant it is. Which is, which always is a very interesting question to me. You know, what, what do we remain faithful to? And what, what continues to sustain our interest with the passage of time? And one way, one way of finding out is revisiting, remembering in the true deep etymological sense of remembering, putting the members back together and revisiting, um, passions we may have had earlier on. And I'm interested that that this book by Ray Bradbury stood stood well in your mind as something that should remain, though its subject, of course, is all about the destruction of a culture. It somehow has preserved it. Absolutely. And I, I think, to be honest, I, I think like the very best works of literature, it actually not only survived time, but expanded over time. I think it's, it, it meant so much more to me and resonated so much more deeply reading it now for the second or third time, having probably read it in high school. I think a lot of people read it in high school where maybe your sense of preservation and the persistence of memory and culture is not as meaningful when you're 17 and can't imagine that you won't live forever. Um, suddenly reading this at this point, it real it's amazing. It's an amazing book. You know, there, there are two, two quotations I, I want to submit to you. One is by Ray Bradbury, and one is by Heinrich Heine. 
And the, the Ray Bradbury one, I, I truly, in this context, like enormously, where he says, you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture, just get people to stop reading them. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. And, and the other one, um, Heine in 1821 said, wherever they burn books, they will also end up burning human beings. Mm-hmm. And I love that quote because it, it is the, the unspoken to me, the, the resonance of it is that there is a connection between people and books right. that is primary. And, and in fact, we saw that happen, certainly in World War II, this happened repeatedly that the um, armies of the Third Reich would come in and, and burn the books of a community, and they did it very intentionally. It was, there was a, a whole... Uh, group of commandos who were called the burn commandos right. who, who were sent in to burn books to terrorize people and to make them feel erased. And in most of those communities, the next thing that happened was people were rounded up and sent to concentration camps. It, it I think what is so fascinating to me is we love the objects around us um, and I mean I'm I'm a big materialist the connection to books is a unique one and it's a, it's unlike any other connection that we have I mean you might say burning art would have that same effect and I wouldn't dismiss it, but there is something about books that has a, that they have a magical vitality. I think, was it Milton who said that? That they have the um, they contain the, the almost the possibility of life. And oh, that that's so beautiful. Yeah, and, and destroying them is both an actual violence, but it's also a symbolic violence of saying your stories no longer exist. You no longer exist. The memory of who you are no longer exists. And burning is a way of doing away with traces. It's interesting because you you don't shred them, you don't bury them. Burning, I mean, there's I think there are a lot of um, death metaphors. It's a, a funeral pyre. You you burn it to kill it, as opposed to just putting it somewhere else. You know, digging a huge pit and burying books, but they're gone, truly gone. They dematerialize when you burn them. There's no nothing left but a little bit of ash. You know, Susan, I wanted you to to read something from the new book but um and i don't know at all what what you might have chosen but i have to say 
that the last few pages of the library book is are extraordinary. And there's one passage in particular, now that we've been speaking about um, the horrors of burning books, I, there's one passage where you write deeply movingly in my mind about libraries, and you, you say the following, a library is a good place to soften solitude, a place where you feel part of a conversation that has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years, even when you're all alone. The library is a whispering post. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it, it, it moved me so much to spend this much time in the library and it was a very meta moment as well being a writer who creates the, some of the books that that live on there and but it's also a physical place and I think that was very striking to me that um, they Libraries are physical places that have a quality that's... I think the only thing I could compare it to would be a city park, a, a shared public-private space. And beyond that, I, I, I can... You know, Grand Central Station. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, and that's why I, at the beginning of our conversation, I was making a connection between the afterword to your book Saturday and this book, because in, in a sense, libraries maintain in your mind a sense of conviviality, a place where people congregate in the presence of others. Um, because, you know, in, 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 in some deep sense, you, you can't tickle yourself. You need to be with others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, again, I, I think this is another reason that I feel tremendously optimistic about the future of libraries. And of course, it's, it's a, a, a real relief when there has been a, a kind of drumbeat of questioning of, well, if you can get everything online, why do you need a library? Right. And forgetting that space, shared common space is essential. You know, the only definition of a town is that you gathered in space together. And civilization, I suppose, you know, when you think about it, it's, it's it's only sharing space with other creatures that we begin forming social identity. And within that, it's, it's so important. And it's not about commerce, which I think is really important. Right. But people, this, I would say it's the Starbucks effect. It's reminding people that there is an enormous pleasure in simply being in public space with other people. And it's not going for lunch with your friend. It's going perhaps by yourself, sitting peacefully with other 
humanoids in a shared space, I think it's the most feeling in the world. It makes me feel like, oh, we, we do exist as a culture and uh, that we are peaceful in groups with strangers. I love it. I, I love that feeling. And I, I get almost choked up. I know. I can hear it. I mean, I can really hear it. Um, because there's a, there's a mixture of being choked up and being at the same time truly, deeply hopeful. It makes me feel, you know, and especially at a moment when I'm not very hopeful about a lot of things. Yes. Society and the feeling that much of what really I despair about is exactly the reverse of this, which is that you have to defend your private space at all costs. But that's not what society is. Society is actually about learning to share space. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. You know, that, that last sentence, society is about learning to share space. And then that line of yours, which haunts me, a library is a good place to soften solitude. I think, um, you said that so beautifully. Um, mm. the, the word soften solitude seems to me so perfectly chosen, Susan. Did you, did you have something you, you might want to read to us? Um, I would, I think I'll read a little bit about, um, I'm debating if I should read to you and maybe I'll ask you to make the choice, either the end of the book or about <clears throat> burning a book. Oh, oh, read the end. Read the last page uh, or if you, if you'd like. It is sure. so, it is so, uh, it is so beautiful that, you know, that, that w maybe where I, where I started. I went to the library late one day, just before closing time, when the light outside was already dusky and the place was sleepy and slow. The library is so big that when the crowds thin out, it can feel very private, almost as if it were a secret place, and it is so enveloping that you have no sense of the world outside. I went from department to department, to department just strolling through, and crossed the beautiful hollow rotunda a gorgeous surprise every time I entered it, and then up the wide lap of the back staircase. The quiet was more soothing than solemn. The library is a good place to stave off loneliness. It is a place to be alone together, a place where you feel part of a conversation that has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. It is a whispering post. You don't need to take a book off a shelf to know there's a voice inside that is waiting to speak to you. And behind that was someone who truly believed that if he or she spoke, someone would listen. It was an affirmation that always amazed me. Even the oddest, most specific book was written with that kind of courage. The author's belief that someone would find it important to, to read. I was struck by how precious and foolish and brave this belief was and how necessary and how full of hope it is to collect these books and, and preserve them. It is declaration that all these stories matter and so does every effort to create something that connects us to one another and to our past 
and to what is still to come. I thought about my mother, who is now gone, and how pleased she would have been to see me in the library. If I knew if we had come here together, she would have been reminding me just about now that if she could have chosen any profession in the world, she would have been a librarian. Susan, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking this call, for taking the time, and for writing such a hopeful book in, in a time when we have reason to despair. Well, thank you for giving me the call, and it's really been a wonderful, wonderful way to begin my day, and I'm, I'm just very, very touched that you, you've enjoyed the book. It means so much to me. And to me. Thank you so much. You can call me anytime. Wonderful. We'll, 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 we'll do it again now, now in our day and age when people don't. We'll do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Paul. Bye-bye, Susan. Take care of yourself.